Hello, and welcome to Ready for Love Radio. This is your host and love coach, Nikki Lee. Today, we're going to tackle a tough subject. Uh, It's going to be tough for me personally, and it's going to be tough maybe for y'all to listen to, but it's one that the people it's going to hit home for need to hear. They need to know that there's support. They need to hear the information. And I think the general public needs to know more about this topic. Something that if it hasn't affected you personally or somebody that you love and care about, you may not really have a clue about the depth of what people go through. Um, I think I think if you watch Law and Order SVU, you might have an inkling, but you still just really don't know the depth of it. So we're going to talk about what it takes to reclaim a healthy sex life after sexual assault. So you're you're seeing the SVU tie in there, I think. So what I've done is I have got a guest with me today. I've got another one of these guests from across the pond. <laughs> I had one the other day and um, when we had um, Kate with us. So today we've got Dr. Lori Beth. And Dr. Lori Beth is a psychologist and a sex and intimacy coach. She's been in practice since 1987. She specializes in working with individuals, couples, and polyamorous groups to help them create their ideal lasting relationships. She has particular expertise working with people who have been traumatized, and she co-authored a book on the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder, which was published by John Wiley and Sons in 1998. She sees people in person in London, and she sees people in person in the U.S. for intensive work only. Actually, she was just here in the U.S. not too long ago. She works with people in Skype, uh, go to meeting, and over the phone as well. And she also has a weekly podcast, The A to Z of Sex. And I've been having more fun reading your blog, your, your A to Z blog. So, Dr. Lori Beth, it's awesome to have you with me today. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Like I said, you suggested this. I love when I, when I ask people their suggestion for a topic and you brought this up. And, and I'm just, I'm so glad we're covering this. It's, it's something that, that I've dealt with in my life personally. It was not one of my easier phases in life I have had something I've had to deal with, but it's something that, that the public the public has no clue. Friends and family of mine have no clue, and I just, it's, it's something I think people need to understand more. I really, really think they need to understand, and I'm, I'm just, I'm really, really I, glad may not be the right word, but I'm just, I'm really pleased that we're able to share this with people today. I really am. So I'm, I'm looking forward to doing the show and, and sharing it with folks. Me too. So let's let's start off. I always like to ask this question, and especially with something like this. What what got you interested in this area of work? Why? How in the world did you get into this? Because this this is certainly not one of those cheery kind of things that that no. you just kind of <laughs> randomly get into. How in the world did you get into this this specialty? Well, um, I was actually a broadcast journalism major in um, university. And I was 19 years old, and um, a friend of mine introduced me to a guy who I dated for a couple of weeks, and then things changed. And he kept me captive for five days, and I was multiply raped and abused during that period of time. Um, Yeah, it was pretty horrific. And, And when I say it, sometimes people think, oh, my God, she says it so matter-of-factly. 
But this was, I was 19 and I'm now 53 <laughs> and I've done an awful lot of work on this. So um, it's a story that I've told more than once. Right. Um, but after the experience, I developed post-traumatic stress disorder. And so I decided to go into therapy, which I did, and therapy was useful, so I changed my major and decided to become a psychologist and then did my PhD research on treatment outcome for post-traumatic stress disorder, particularly with crime victims. So that's how I ended up there. You know, I, I think, it, well, I mean, and, and even when I tell people about, about my assault, you kind of have to disconnect yourself from it. I mean, isn't that part of the dealing process? I mean, yeah. I mean, the idea is I don't feel disconnected from it. It just has no feeling for negative feeling for me anymore. It was a horrible point in my life. Don't get me wrong, you know. But I can talk about it, write about it, think about it, and the emotions that were there aren't anymore. What's left are kind of the lessons I pulled from that, the things I, the things I managed to accomplish after. Um, resolving all the trauma um, rather than the kind of, it's not live anymore. It's, it's what I say to clients when I work with them on any kind of traumatic event is that, it, you know, it, trauma can be live. And when it's live, it, it, it carries loads of emotion with it because it feels like it's still ongoing when you talk about right. it. Right. Um, and when you're past it, it's no longer live. And so it doesn't feel intense. It's an intense story, but it, right. doesn't, it, it doesn't feel that way anymore because I've already felt those feelings. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, my, my assault happened on New Year's Eve, and I finally have gotten to the point where I can actually get through New Year's Eve without it being traumatic for me. So that's, yeah, so I've actually gotten to that point finally. So, okay, that makes sense. I guess I didn't understand why, but it's, it's nice that I can actually get through New Year's Eve and it's not this, this horrible event for me anymore, so... Mm-hmm. And, and when that, ha- you know, when that happens, then you know that y- your kind, of, your healing is moving forward. Right. Right. Okay. I didn't didn't try to get a free session in there. Sorry, I just I just. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, I can. But you know, that so many of my guests, something in their life is what prompted them to get into the niche of of the coaching work that they do, and I I love that because it's I I think I think the people we work with and. And the listeners, they get how personal what we're doing is, you know, and I think mm-hmm. they get so much more from it because it is, because we are passionate about what we're doing. You know, it means mm-hmm. so much more to us. And, and when, it's, when it's that personal and we've experienced it on such a personal level, I, I don't think people can listen to us and not sense that which I, it just makes it so much better. It just, it, mm-hmm. I, I think it does. <laughs> you know? it's, not, it's not like somebody's just kind of regurgitating what they've heard or what they've read and what they've yeah. learned. I mean, it's, it's just, it, it's so much more and so much more personal to them. I, I love it yeah. when you can feel the passion when you talk to somebody, you know? I, I think that's, I mean, I, I do think that for some areas that can be quite important, which isn't to say that you can't work with people who are traumatized if you haven't had the same trauma yourself or trauma yourself, but I think if you have experienced it and actually worked yours through, you, you have a rather unique perspective. And it, um, even if you're not talking about your perspective with a client, they can feel that and it, mm-hmm. it, make, it makes the work easier. Yeah. Well, it certainly makes it easier to understand 
or to be more understanding and, and compassionate mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So, okay. Well, one of the things, too, and I, I reached out to some, some friends of mine that had either been through various types of assault and trauma or that I know work with people who have been through various types of assaults just to kind of get various perspectives other than just my own. Because like I said, this, this is very personal to me, so I, I wanted to get outside of my perspective to make mm-hmm. sure that I was, I was not just thinking about my experiences. And one of the interesting things was I said, tell me, tell me what you think I need to talk about in the show. You know, <laughs> get, get me outside of my head. And one of the interesting things was um, one of them to be a list of different types of sexual trauma. And I said, okay, well, this is good because this will kind of give us a, a perspective for the listeners because they may only be thinking as limited as I was when I first started thinking about this topic because I, I was thinking just basically sexual assault, like possibly rape, that sort of thing. Okay, and this, this was a list that he sent me that I thought was, was interesting. One of them could have been genital trauma of some kind, like say if a man um, has been injured in some way. I had, I had a client. I had a client who um, was shot um, in in a, in a war situation, and oh. um, and was shot in the penis, and um, his penis was disfigured as a result. Most of his penis was gone as a result, and he had to have it rebuilt. So it, I, I presume that would fall into that category. Definitely. Well, I, okay, I hadn't thought about it, but okay, veterans could be very very yeah. much a, a part of that. Okay, um, women with a mastectomy, or or even. Um, some of the the things that happen in other countries with with the various types of mutilation that are done to women, mm-hmm. um, any kind of a physical disability that would ex- that would affect somebody in a sexual sort of way, mm-hmm. or even some other kinds of physical disabilities that affect them in a sexual way that could be a, a way. Um, obviously, rape or assault would be one. Ending a long term relationship, I hadn't thought about it, but that could be a sexual trauma also. Um, cheating or desertion could be because that would obviously have a sexual impact on people. Mm-hmm. Um, sexual abuse, which can take on many different forms. Domestic violence certainly could be. And then he brought up deviant sexual behavior and fetishes, which I hadn't thought about it, but the way he explained it, and he did explain that for me, was if one partner insists on a behavior that the other one considers deviant, Enforces their partner into it, which that, okay, that so, could also be. I, I would, then, I would, I would be really careful with that. Um, and so mm-hmm. the way that I would put that is, I would just consider that a type of sexual assault or rape. I wouldn't want to make that a separate category, okay. because because uh, first of all, you're, when you start out and you label it deviant sexual behavior, you you, you run into all sorts of difficulties. Um, okay. Um, in terms of um, a huge, rather huge population of people who do things that a smaller segment of the population consider deviant. So I think the way that I would phrase that is that would be, that would be something that could happen under the category of sexual assault, one partner forcing or pressuring the other partner to do something that they don't want to do. It doesn't matter whether it's um, straightforward intercourse or it's participating in a fetish. That actually doesn't change the trauma. It's right. Con- that, right. right. That's content, not not the process of the of the trauma. So it actually doesn't change the trauma. That, that I think that's what he was doing. He was just explaining that could be that would be considered a type of assault. Yeah. Okay. I, I think y'all were both saying the same thing. 
I may be explaining it wrong, but y'all are saying the same thing. Okay. But okay, so that was just kind of opening up in case people were just thinking one sort of of trauma. I just thought that would be a way to kind of open people's minds mm-hmm. to to the variety of sorts of things we could be thinking about when we're talking about all this. Just kind of setting the stage <laughs> so, or laying the foundation. How about that? Yep. One of the things a friend of mine mentioned also was something that's so important when you're. Um, trying to recover and, and trying to have a healthy relationship after sexual assault is, is having an accepting, supportive partner. Now, the partner may, may not, and, and I, I would think likely, and you may disagree with me on this, and if so, definitely feel free to, to do that. They, they, your partner may never fully understand what you've been through, but if they're accepting and supportive, that's what you need, and non-judgmental. Because it, it, it seems the, the public, and, and I, I found even friends and family can be, especially family, can be so judgmental about things. But if, if they're supportive and accepting of you, that's so huge. That's what I needed. I needed people just to be supportive and accepting and in, to, make, to help me know they were there to support me. I mean, I, I think that is absolutely huge. Um, I think that one of the most important things is to have a partner who's not, or partner or friends, whoever's listening to to the person who has been through this sexual trauma, to be um, non-judgmental, um, to be able to take their own reaction somewhere else initially, and that can be right. very, very hard for a partner. Um, so a partner who is absolutely horrified, for example, um, I'm thinking of a couple that, that came in, that, that the woman was raped, the man was horrified by the fact that she was raped. Part of his reaction had to do with her having been with another man. Right. And he couldn't move away from that. And the way that he would speak about it was as though she chose to be with another man, which of course she had not done. She was raped. But it was, it was... And, it, you know, it was a, that part of it was an assault on him that, right. that their monogamous relationship, in his view, was no, lo- has no, lo- was no longer monogamous. I, ar- I would have argued the point, but that was how he felt. So um, what he needed to do was actually take those issues to somebody else. Because by bringing them to, the, to his partner, he was um, shaming her and judging right. her and making, making her feel worse. Exactly. So that's yeah, hugely that, important. Yeah, I, I could I could see how impulsively he could have that issue, but man, that that's that's not helpful in any uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, wow. But it's unfortunately very common. It's a very common response. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. The. Re- <laughs> Reaction I got from some family members were by, by the time I told them it was it was like twelve or thirteen years after the fact. And reaction I got well, but it was a long time ago. <laughs> mm. Wow. Well, things, things <laughs> yeah. like things like what were you wearing, or um, or if a yeah. person knew the if a person knew the person, it was what did you do to invite that? I mean, you know, so you know, all right. those sorts of responses prolong the difficulty that people have recovering from these experiences. Right. There, there's so many immediate responses people make that just are so just not helpful, you know. 
yeah, there's just there so many things you just need. To, there, there should be a whole list of things that you don't say to people when they tell you these things. I have a list <laughs> somewhere. Uh, you know what? I, I, I have a list somewhere, um, and um, I kind of I'll offer people if they give me you know sort of a few days from taping to to dig it out. I made a list of things not to say to somebody who tells you that they've experienced a sexual trauma. Oh, that's cool. Well, I tell you what, how about if I put a link on the page for the show yep. and and they can send you an email and you'll send it to them. How about that? Yep, that's fine. Awesome. Awesome. We will do that. I will add a link to the page and you can ask her and she will send it to you. I like that. Very good. <laughs> so what, is, what do you think is, is, what are some of the biggest struggles people have that are dealing with um, a, a sexual trauma? Most, and I, I, know most, I know there's a million, but what, what are the couple of the biggest? I think with most sexual trauma, one of the biggest issues that people have is guilt. Um, yes. Now, I, I, I've spoken, you know, I've referred to her and she mostly because um, um, there's a disproportionate amount of sexual trauma perpetrated against women, but men are also abused. Men are abused by um, female partners, which we never talk about. Um, men are abused by mothers, not just fathers, um, and, um, and, and also some men are abused in same-sex relationships as well. So um, I, I really shouldn't just say women, so I want to make sure that I'm, I'm acknowledging that. Um, but we tend to slip into women because the, the overwhelming amount of, of people who are um, sexually assaulted are women. And so the, one of the biggest things is guilt. Everybody thinks that they did something, that it was their fault somehow. It doesn't matter how young they were when the trauma was perpetrated. It doesn't matter how helpless, physically helpless they were. They think that they did something to cause it. And then guilt because they didn't do enough to stop it. Right. And then the third well, guilt which is probably the worst guilt and gets in the way of their sexual relationships the most has to do with any positive sexual feelings they might have had during the experience um, or any fantasies that they had before the experience. So um, fantasies of being raped comes up as one, like the number three fantasy that women have. Really? Yes. Rape huh. fantasies are really, really, really common. Rape fantasies bear no resemblance to rape realities. Rape fantasies are like your, your um, bodice crusher romantic novel, right? Right. This guy, you know, rape fantasies are this guy who you wanted to sleep with anyway, or this gal you wanted to sleep with anyway, overpowers you, caveman style, throws you over the shoulder, and makes love to you frantically. Those are what those rape, rape fantasies look like. That it bears no resemblance to a rape reality. But women who have had rape fantasies or women who have had fantasies about sexual domination or sexual slavery and then find themselves in a non-consensual situation where they're being sexually assaulted somehow feel as though they, they not only did they ask for it, but it's their desires that got them in this position. So that's one part. But the other part is, is that bodies respond 
And so for quite a large percentage of women and men, there will be, with women, there will be orgasm if a, a sexual assault goes on long enough because your body will respond to certain types of stimulation. With men who get raped, they will get an erection. Right. And so because of that, they feel guilty. And these women feel guilty that somehow they enjoyed this experience that they absolutely hated. And so that's another huge guilt that nobody talks about. And the final well, guilt that people... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so, so many people don't understand that, that the body responds, whether you're enjoying it or not. Well, just, just like you, you can have really lousy sex and the body can still respond to it. You know, so mm-hmm. it's, it's the same principle. Your, your body is going to respond in certain ways, whether it's good or not, whether you're enjoying it or not. So it's the same thing with rape. If you're being assaulted, it doesn't mean that you're enjoying it. Your body just does respond to certain things that are done to it. And, and but, particularly in stressful situations sometimes. Sometimes right. some, some women, for example, some women, if they're stressed, they can't reach orgasm for love nor money. Right. right. Other women, if they're stressed, that's a comfort mechanism, so it's easier. Okay. So, you, so it, it, it can become very emotionally confusing. But the other part of it is, and this, this has more common with people who have had longer-term sexual traumas. So people who were sexually abused, either in childhood or adolescence, or people who, like, myself were in an experience that lasted over a period of time um, and they were repeatedly abused, will find themselves desiring something they experienced during the trauma afterwards. So not that person, not that event, right? They don't want to repeat the rape, but for example, if, um, if somebody forced a penis down the woman's throat, at the time, it wasn't a pleasurable experience, but six months later, she's fantasizing and she's trying to reach orgasm and that comes into mind as a pleasurable experience, right, as a desire. Okay. That probably rates on the highest for guilt produ- production. Oh, okay. Again, again, because she feels like, why am I fantasizing about this? It was a horrible experience. If I'm fantasizing about it, maybe I really did want it which is what a lot of people will tell rape victims that they wanted it, they deserved it. Um, so that's the, the last kind of guilt. And that, those are the, the, the last few that I talked about are the ones that really, really, really get in the way of creating healthy sexual relationships afterwards. Interesting. And that could be any, any kind of activity that went on during the assault? Yep. Huh. Okay, I well, okay, I thought more of the negative sort of things that happened during the assault. I hadn't thought about the positive things. That's interesting. I mean, you know, people have flashbacks, and that's a negative experience. That's not what I'm talking right. about. A flashback right. okay. is okay. So the, the, this is like a flashback is when unbidden the um, event comes to mind, and you feel like you're in it. And that's not what I'm talking about. That is a problem in terms of creating right. a healthy sexual relationship because you can be in the right. middle of really great sex with your partner and all of a sudden you have a flashback and sex is over. Right. Yeah. But that's not what I'm talking about. This is when somebody actually finds that a piece of the assault becomes part of their fantasy material. Okay. And turns them on and then is 
horrified that they're turned on by that thought. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I, I only had negative flashbacks. I never had any of the, the positive things. Huh, interesting. Okay. See, I love, I love when I do a show and, like, I learn all kinds of new things. I just, I like that. All right, plus, like I said, the audience is learning new things, too. But, yeah, the, the, it's amazing how, well, it, it takes so long to get past the guilt feelings when, and, and, and when you finally realize that you aren't to blame and it's not your fault and you didn't do anything to cause it, and then you realize all the time you spent blaming yourself, you know, but at the time it, it just seems so logical that you had to have done something to make this happen, you know. It, it can't possibly be that you're not to blame somehow. But, yeah, just like just another reason I wanted to, to do a show about this to try to help people. Yeah, so that, that was, you asked for a couple, that was like one five parts guilt. Five parts guilt, but um, I think the other thing that is like one of the biggest problems in terms of um, moving past and having a healthy sexual relationship are the the actual trauma symptoms, flashbacks, um, in, and intrusive thoughts and intrusive memories during sex. Um, and that is um, incredibly common, even if somebody doesn't develop full-blown post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and that really, I mean, it, it just it just gets in the way of any kind of healthy sex afterwards because it stops play. Right. Okay, so that brings up a point. Do you think that somebody that survived an assault needs or should tell any new partner or existing a partner if they've been assaulted? Um, I don't like to be prescriptive. However, I think if you're wanting to have an an open, honest, authentic relationship with somebody, then they need to know something about your sexual history. And that's a pretty intense part of your sexual history. And people freak when I say that. They're like, no, no, that's not, it's not my sexual history. It's my trauma history. It's your sexual history. It's yeah. the bad part of your sexual history, but it's still your sexual history. Um, if for no other reason than to have your new partner avoid triggers if you haven't fully dealt with it yet. I remember a client who, um, who's par- um, part of the um, rape experience for her was this man um, forcing anal sex. And she was embarrassed and she didn't like to talk to partners about it. But anytime somebody would touch her bum during sex, right, they didn't even have to get to the anus but just kind of hovering around the area, she would freeze. And she would never feel comfortable giving an explanation. So she ended many relationships because she couldn't proceed. Now, that could have been quite easily dealt with. It didn't have to be a detailed explanation of what happened to her if she wasn't yet ready to do that, but actually a brief explanation. Just to say, I was sexually assaulted many years ago, and part of the assault was forced anal sex, and so any time somebody touches the area, I get triggered. If she didn't want to even go that far, she could say, I was sexually assaulted many years ago, and, you know, touching my bum triggers me. So please don't touch my bum during sex. That's that simple. Would have been, yeah, that would have been the easy way to deal with that. 
but she had so much shame that she didn't want to say anything. So while I don't want to be prescriptive and say, yes, you absolutely, you know, must, I do think it's useful if you, if you actually want to have good, authentic, healthy sexual relationships to, to inform your partner of your history. All right. That's what I thought you were going to say. I just, I just, for the audience, I wanted to ask you to make sure. <laughs> so. But, yeah, that's, it's not an easy conversation to have, but it's, it's something you, you kind of need to get out there. So, But, you know, when people talk a lot these days about marketing and advertising, you know, and they t- tell you to give your elevator speech, you know that one? Yes, if, I, I've, if you, I've done that many times, yes. Right, so you have to learn your elevator speech. So I actually help trauma victims compose their elevator speech. Their, their their sexual trauma. That's, very that's right. Their sexual trauma elevator speech, and we have different versions of it. So you know, there might be a version that you tell your you, you give your parents if you're having trouble. Um, and there, there might be a version that you give people that you're really into intimate with. You want to be really intimate with before you're intimate with them, just so that people can avoid triggers. And right. so, if you've rehearsed it, then it's a less difficult conversation to have. Well, and, and you, you can have a more casual elevator speech and then somebody that you're more serious about, you have a, yep. you know, a different elevator speech. So, yeah, yep. makes good sense to me. Now, something, too, that's a struggle that people deal with after a sexual assault is there, there may be this ongoing struggle that, because there's, there's a lot of conflicting emotions, and I, I, that, that's a massive understatement, to say the least. And, and there may be this struggle between you, you feel that you just want to completely avoid sex altogether or you, you may have the feeling that you, you want to have sex with as many people as possible just to prove that you're okay, quote, unquote, okay. You know, mm-hmm. so what, what would be your advice for somebody that's, that's dealing with that and, and trying to get on any kind of an even keel? Because, like I said, it's, ne- neither one is healthy. Okay, neither one is healthy, whether they're with a partner or not. What what advice would, would you give to somebody that's kind of in that, that back and forth and, and trying to figure out? Because, like I said, I, either either one of those mentalities is, is understandable afterwards because, like I said, there's there's sort of a, a logic to where both of those, those ideas mm-hmm. come from. But what would be your advice to that, about that? Well, I mean, I think one of the things to make a distinction between us is sort of when people should consider going for some, some form of therapy and, and trauma, there's really good trauma specific therapy out there. Trauma is one of the, um, one of the things that can really be worked with so that people actually move past and have no more symptoms. So that's great. People get other things as a result of sexual trauma as well, besides get getting PTSD. Um, but PTSD happens to be one of the things that we, we work with quite well as psychologists um, if you have a specialty in the area. Um, and the distinction between when, when you're looking at coaching in terms of improving your, making your sexual relationships more healthy. So if you're swinging between avoidance of sex and just trying to have as much sex as possible, that should be a, a clue that you might want to consider some therapy. I think that I say that because particularly if you're having loads and loads of sex indiscriminately in an effort to prove that you're okay, you, you raise the risk that you're going to be re-traumatized because Not your judgment isn't great. 
when you have unresolved trauma, you have your judgment isn't as good. And um, it's like you have a sign on your forehead that says, perpetrator, pick me. Um, sure. it, 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 you know, it, I, I cannot tell you, this is really unpopular um, sometimes when I say this, but there are statistics that demonstrate that a higher number of uh, women who have been sexually abused in childhood are raped in adulthood. It hmm. is not their fault. The reason that I believe that this happens is because their boundaries are screwy from having been sexually abused. And so they don't spot the perpetrator quickly enough. So they become the easy target. That's not their fault. It's just like they have a sign on their forehead that says, hey, pick me. I'm not, I'm not going to run as, as fast. You think it could be too because they they haven't dealt with it and and they just it it's kind of their norm. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it's okay. So if if you think about it this way, how quickly will you tell somebody to piss off if they're in, if they're too clo- physically approaching you and too close to you and you don't know them? Right. So you know sometimes if um, if you've been sexually abused as a child, the person will actually touch you before you push them away. Right. Whereas somebody who hasn't been, the person won't even get, you know, they're a foot away and they're already picking up that vibe and pushing them away. It's just, it's just your, it's just a a quicker boundary and a harder boundary. And if this isn't thinking stuff, this is, you know, this goes on on a, on a subconscious or unconscious level. This isn't going on on a conscious level, which is why I say it's like having a sign on your forehead. So once somebody deals with that and they've uncovered all it and they've dealt with the stuff they then learn more average boundaries as part of that, and then um, then they're at the, at the same risk as the general population. Okay. All right. Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. Huh. See, I like, I like when you make these points. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Now, one of the people I was talking to was saying, too, that... that um, one of the things too, when a person is is dealing with this, um, and and they have been abused, one of the things may be that sex isn't their issue, okay? But it may be that um, as soon as the sex is over, they they start having a lot of conflicting emotions, you know, and they want to they want to get away from the the person, just like. As, as quick as possible, you know, push them away and that sort of thing. It's it's the vulnerability and the intimacy that that they have such an issue with. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm trying to say? Um, mm-hmm. What what sort of um, advice or help could you give a person? Because it's it's the the like I said, the vulnerability that you feel. Because I mean, I mean, sex makes you very vulnerable. I mean, you're just you're so vulnerable to the other person at that point. So like I said, the actual sex, sexual act isn't the issue, the, the thing that they have such an issue with, but it's, it's the, I don't know, I guess aftermath, <laughs> you know, and, the, and the, being in the moment with the person afterwards that they, they're having the issue with and the feelings and all that sort of thing. What sort of advice could you give a person? Well, I mean, I think if that's the case, that, that first that first off, it's useful to kind of make an agreement with yourself that you're not going to have sex with somebody that you aren't 
um, already um, quite intimate with and feel um, really trusting with that you haven't already disclosed your sexual abuse to and, and spend time talking with um, because that will that may lower some of that discomfort and that feeling of, of, a, of a need to run when vulnerable. So the feeling mm-hmm. might be there but the person may then be able to not act on that feeling and to actually talk with their partner about that feeling so they can get reassurance and they can work together to make it easier. Um, and, and of course, that's harder if you're, if you're just, you know, having a casual sexual partner. True. Very true. So I would say avoid casual sexual partners um, is one way of, of managing that. Um, and, you know, some therapeutic work on the area will also be very useful to, to, to work on the part of the trauma. That's still part of the trauma. It's just not the actual sex part. So the part of the trauma maybe that, that brings that up is the, is, is the betrayal and abuse. Right. You know, right. so the act itself wasn't traumatizing. And, and, and sometimes people are horrified when I say that. But sometimes the act isn't traumatizing, the physical act. Sometimes the act is pleasant, um, particularly in child, child sexual abuse. Sometimes the act is pleasant. The child doesn't know any different. And if somebody's not being rough with them and being adult with them, it might not be horribly traumatizing. But, but the, the betrayal, that's traumatizing. And so that's just a different part of the trauma at that point that's traumatizing. And so you can look at that in therapy. But as far as working on it with a partner, that's a case of really needing to be authentic and probably deciding you're not going to have sex with anybody that you you don't feel you can be authentic with and actually prepare for sex in advance instead of, you know, kind of having sex spontaneously initially. What if, what if even if the sex is, tra- is, is painful and is traumatizing, but the person doing it is somebody very close to you and the betrayal is just so off the chart could it be that the betrayal is so extreme that that's even more traumatizing than the pain? Sure. Is that possible? Sure. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it's you never know what parts of the whole experience are going to be the most traumatic for people. Um, right. But it doesn't. It doesn't have to be the physical experience that gets in the way of sex. It can also be the emotional part of it that gets in the way of sex. Okay, I'm, I'm just thinking about this, this one specific case because, like I said, I'm, I mean, I, I know that the physical part was horrendous, but I also know who was doing it, and, and that's so that that betrayal was on a level that's just unbelievable, and it, it could be that that, huh? That's interesting. Okay, I'm gonna have to think about that after we're done. But okay, that's uh, another another notation I need to make. So okay, interesting. Something to think about. Okay, so how, and I don't think we've covered this yet. I'm, I'm making so many notes I've lost track. Um, what's the best way, or is there a best way, to approach this with a partner, um, I guess with a new partner? What would be the best way to approach this for and, and I hate I hate the word victim, so I try to never use that. So, what's mm-hmm. the best way to an, for an assault survivor to approach this whole topic with their partner to get things started off on the right foot? Because I mean, it's 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 a hard enough conversation to have anyway. Okay, 
but you want to try to start it off on the right foot. How is the best way to at least get the conversation started that you can get things started in the best possible direction? I think I think having the conversation early on, I think something that I've experienced, I, I work a lot with um, with people who are in um, same-sex relationships, in uh, polyamorous relationships, in alternative relationships, like with power exchange, and as well as with heterosexual folks. And i got to say that heterosexual folks are the only ones who don't have conversations before sex most of the time. It's amazing to me. Heterosexual folks are far more likely to meet somebody, if, if you're lucky, they'll have the safe sex conversation and to end up in bed before they have any idea what the person likes, dislikes. Whereas um, folks who have what would say all, more alternative relationships are much, in, in many cases, not always, you know, certainly there's a lot of anonymous sex that happens, um, but in many cases are, are much more likely to actually have a conversation about and to expect to have a conversation about sexual likes and dislikes um, as, as part of the sexual health conversation, safe sex conversation. And so um, that's, they that's tend to screen, isn't it? That, that's interesting. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. No, no. I mean, it is a really interesting comparison. <laughs> and but so that makes it easier in a sense, because what I would what I would say to, to people who don't normally do that, that's what you need to start doing. The best way to bring it up with a new partner is to do it before you're having sex, right? When you know right. that you're, in, you're sexually interested in each other and that's where you would like to go, that's the time to have the conversation. If for no other reason, then you'll discover if they're even going to react appropriately. There's nothing worse for a trauma survivor than to have somebody who reacts in, in a horrible manner, you know, either in a blaming manner, a judgmental manner, or they completely freak out. You know, there's nothing worse than experiencing that at the time of sex, <laughs> you know. So right. find, you can find that out early on if you actually choose to have that conversation at the same time that you want to have the safe sex conversation. Interesting. At okay. The, at the beginning. And if you're not comfortable talking it, then perhaps this is one you want to you want to write. Very true. That's what I, that's what I did with, with family members that I told. I said I said I, I can't do this face to face, so I'm just going to write it down and hand it to them and say, read this after I walk out the door. So yeah, I mean you know well in this day and age there's so much electronic communication. You know you might want to have that as a as a kind of pre written thing that you give prospective partners. Um, I would encourage you to try and do it face-to-face because it's really important to see your partner's reaction, um, right. your prospective partner's reaction. It's really important to see how they handle you in terms of making future decisions. And also, it's showing willing to try the relationship. So you are getting a little bit vulnerable with them. You're showing willing to get a little bit vulnerable with them. But then hopefully, you know, if you're making good choices, they'll show willing to get vulnerable with you. That's true. So it seems that some people might find it very difficult to be supportive in this kind of situation. What mm-hmm. what should a person do if they're they're in a relationship that's that's positive in, in other ways, but they find out that their partner's having a very difficult time being supportive? What what can they do in that kind of situation? Well, first they can try and get some some help for their partner in terms of education or therapeutic support or both in order to you know, coaching is useful 
at that point for the partner in terms of how to manage it so that the partner can talk to somebody else about who's knowledgeable about what it is that, that they're finding difficult and they can do, you know, find some ways to work around it. Um, if that doesn't work or if the partner is entirely unwilling, I think somebody, needs, somebody in that situation needs to really evaluate whether or not um, they are able to manage with just getting support from outside of their relationship and what kind of impact that might have on their sex life. Right. Well, in, in, in you know, all of the phases of, of the relationship, because, I mean, they, they're going to need that support, you know? Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's, I, I don't know. You just, you need, a, you need a, a partner you can be open and honest with and, and that you know is going to support you. But the thing is, too, though, I, you need, to, um, if your partner has reasonable, what would be some reasonable reasons why your partner would have issues being supportive. How about that? Let, let's, um, let's be concerned about the partner. Okay. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, okay, so one of them is that your partner has been through um, a sexual trauma themselves. Okay. And so this brings back memory of their own sexual trauma. You may or may not know about it. Okay. Uh, and so that's one reason why a partner might have trouble supporting. Um, Another reason is that your partner uh, somehow feels um, responsible for your trauma, uh-huh. and, sometimes, and sometimes that is um, reality-based, like, you know, a woman gets raped when she w- went on her own to some event that the partner was supposed to escort her to, and, and he didn't for some reason that wasn't what he considers now a good reason, and she gets raped, so he feels responsible. Or it might be totally, totally irrational. I'm a man, I should be able to, you know, pr- protect my woman from everything. And, mm-hmm. and although that is completely irrational, that's a very common response and can, and, and can, be a dev- and can feel devastating that this person wasn't able to protect their woman or a parent who wasn't able to protect their child um, can have huge difficulty being supportive because they feel like they, they were completely unable to be a proper parent. Um, uh, um, their uh, rage can get in the way. Right. So rage at the person who, who did this um, can turn into rage at the partner without meaning to. Okay. Those are the things that are most common, I think, that get in the way. Interesting. Okay. Okay, there was... There was uh, you, so you brought up some good points I hadn't thought about. Okay, all right. Huh. Well, and like there, there could be there's could be some very good things close to home that that it brings up in your your partner. There should there there could easily be triggers for your partner that you don't know about. So yeah, and there's just all kinds of, all kinds of dynamics. So, how are some ways that um, for for the listeners out there that that aren't directly involved? Um, if they find out that um, someone they're close to is is dealing with the situation and trying to have a healthy relationship, and um, how how can they possibly help? Like, say it's a, a close friend or their their brother or sister, this sort of thing is is working on it. Is is there a way that they can be helpful? If yeah. if say they're they're struggling to to make things work. Yes. I mean, the first thing is, it's as long as they are able to set a, a good amount of time aside and 
listen without judgment, that's really helpful. Um, the most important thing if you're going to invite somebody who's been traumatized to speak to you is that um, you don't judge them. The second most important thing is that you don't cut them off. And that's really hard. That means that if you only have 15 minutes, don't invite them to talk to you. Yeah. Yeah, I've set aside a good portion of time because you don't want them to be in the middle of things and horribly upset and then say, oh, my God, i got to go, because that will just right. re-traumatize the person. So, you know, leave a, a nice period of time, focus completely on them, all phones and email and all of that off, and then make sure um, to be non-judgmental. And that, that being that, that, um, that listener and holding that safe space for somebody can be really, really helpful in these circumstances. Um, the second way is to notice if um, your um, friend, your brother, your sister is really, really struggling and if they're not in therapy um, and they don't have any professional support, if you notice they're having a lot of symptoms and struggling, gently to be able to suggest that maybe they seek out some help. Sometimes it can be helpful if you can kind of do a little bit of research for them because they may find it really hard to reach out. Right. What what would be some of the symptoms for them to look for that, that somebody is struggling? Um, that they are having lots of flashbacks, they're having lots of intrusive thoughts, they're um, finding it difficult to um, sleep, uh, they startle easily, perhaps they are hypervigilant, which means they feel like a need to be constantly aware of everything going on around them, their anxiety level is through the ceiling, they might be having panic attacks, um, they might um, uh, try and completely avoid anything to do that might possibly trigger um, memories of the event. So all of those sorts of things. If they start increasing use of substances, it's, it's, it's important to try and get them help pretty quickly because then they just end up developing a second problem because drinking is never going to get to deal with this. It's not going to make sleep easier. Um, it's not going to push the memories away, nor is any drug use. So if you see um, an increase in substance use, that's uh, something that you probably want to try and address pretty quickly. You know, I think so many times if people would stop jumping to conclusions and stop being judgmental about things when people start acting differently and say, you know what, maybe maybe something's wrong. Maybe, maybe, maybe somebody just needs a little compassion and maybe there's something I can do to help if I just kind of take a minute and step back and say, you know, do, do you need something? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I do think it's important because, cause, you know, we're focusing so much on, on, on how hard this is. But I do think it's important for people to understand that it is very, very possible to create wonderfully enjoyable and healthy sexual relationships after all sorts of sexual trauma. It may take yeah. a lot of work to get there, right. you know, it, it may take a lot of work to get there, but um, I mean, I, I stand as proof that it's possible. Um, I have fantastic relationships now, and um, that, that took a lot of work, but the work was well worth it. So sometimes I think people get the idea that if, if you've experienced sexual trauma, you're going to spend the rest of your life avoiding triggers. Right. So first you get you get rid of symptoms and then you spend the rest of your life avoiding triggers. That's not necessarily so. For a lot of people, they are able to move on and create really exciting, satisfying relationships. Uh, I like that you mentioned that because there's, there's so many times that I'll talk about stuff on the show 
and and one of the points that I really really like to bring out to people is there there's so many things that you really do have to work for in life, but the thing is the work is it's so so worth the effort because mm-hmm. once you get to the other side, it just I mean the blessings just abound. You know the benefits you get from the changes you make. You just you don't even I mean it it gets to the point where it it just you don't even it, the work is it the work you put in doesn't even begin to to matter when you oh, think about all all the pluses. Definitely, just, definitely. You know, mm-hmm. it just yeah. It it is totally possible to get to the point where and like I said, I mean I'm I'm to the point now. I, I used to just I'd look at the calendar and I absolutely hated hated to see New Year's Eve come up. You know, I just did. Every stinking year I hated to see New Year's Eve come up. And and obviously it does, you know. And it's not like mm-hmm. it's just another day on the calendar that nobody ever talks about. You know, it had to be a stupid holiday. You know, but it gets to the point now where I, I, I don't mind it anymore. It's just not a big deal anymore. You know, so you can get to the point where you don't have to dread certain things. You don't have to dread things. You don't have to dread being excited to, to go out with somebody. You don't have to dread having sex. And you can actually have amazing sex and enjoy it. Yep. So yeah. it doesn't and, and, have to rule your life. No, and it doesn't, and it doesn't need to stay live forever either. You know, no. and, and for a lot of people, stop their work when things are still live, but they're not live all the time. No. So there's still still active triggers, but because they don't happen all the time, they, they think, okay, I'm done. And no. I would encourage people to go forward and do other kinds of work so that it's actually not live at all anymore and that it, it would be a very rare thing indeed that you were triggered um, and that you're actually enjoying things and, 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 you know, long periods of time go by where you don't think about the event anymore. And, right. and, and, I, and it, that is so possible. And, and that's the great thing, that there is help out there that can, that can make that happen. But it is hard work, and I really encourage everybody to do that work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that falls in line. There's, there's a lot of things that, that, you know, people get to a point and they're like, they they get to a point where they're they're not happy with with where they're at. They're not happy with the way their life is day in and day out. But you know, and, and like I said, this is the thing I bring up on the show a lot. There, if you're in a position and things are are going a certain way in your life, you're not happy with it. You can change it. It's not simple. I'm not Pollyanna. Trust me, I'm not Pollyanna. Mm-hmm. Pollyanna is a fictional character in a TV show. I mean, in a movie. But you know, you can make a change. You got to be ready to put the work into it. You got to be ready to put the effort into it. It's not going to be easy, but it's worth every single bit of effort you put into it, and it's just so much better when you get done. It's worth every bit of it. So I'm thrilled that you said that. I didn't prompt her. I swear, people, I did not prompt her to say that. (laughs) But, yeah, I just, like I said, I I really wanted to help people to understand that they, they can make a difference, that we do understand they aren't alone in the struggle that they're going through. I want I want potential partners and existing partners to understand some portion of what's going on in the mind of a survivor. That there's there's all these conflicting emotions. There's you know even trying to explain the conflicting emotions in a survivor's head is complicated <laughs> to say the least. 
and to help people that, that haven't come in contact with a sole survivor, you know, to, to have some inkling of, of what's going on. So if they ever do, they can have some, some small compassion for that person, you know, mm-hmm. to have some idea that this person does not need your judgment. They don't need you to jump to conclusions. They need you to be understanding, compassionate, do not be judgmental, and do something to reach out and try to help. You know, try to help. That's what the person needs from you. So that was, that was a few of my goals with doing the show today. Right. So what, what did we not cover? We have about three or four minutes left. What have, what have we not covered that we need to share? Um, I just I think that you know it, it's that there are a lot of resources out there, so please take advantage of the resources that are out there um, and learn what you can about sexual assault. Um, be observant, um, be compassionate for others, and and know that you can actually create an amazing sex life afterwards. Uh, and yes. that starts with you, and 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 all of the healing starts with you, and then uh, and then moves out from there. Um, and that's all. The, that's all I can think of in three to four minutes that we need to cover. <laughs> I, can, I can tell you where you can find me. Um, okay, well, let them know how they can find you. And like I said, I, I love your, I love your A to A to Z blog and and, and yeah. podcast. She, she's I working away the alphabet. Yep, I have um, www.a2zofsex.com. And that's got a blog, a podcast, and there's also a newsletter that goes along with it. We've got a weekly podcast, weekly blog, and a monthly newsletter working through the sexual alphabet one letter at a time. Um, and I can be reached there at Dr. Lori Beth at w at sorry Dr. Lori Beth at a to z of sex dot com, or um, my other site is theintimacycoach.com. So that's www.the-intimacy-coach.com. You can find um, other blogs there. Um, soon there will be an altogether separate podcast starting there in the next three weeks. There's listings of programs and events where you can find me. I do intensive work with sexual assault victims as well as um, more spread out work with sexual assault victims. Um, and I do travel to the U.S. quite a lot. So um, for intensive work, I always do that that in person. Um, but it's uh, not impossible that if you wanted to work with me, you could work with me. You can also find me on yourtango.com, and I'm on Twitter at Dr. Bisbee. Awesome. Uh, Dr. B-I-S-B-E-Y. Awesome. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> oh, and I think you're, you're offering a discount to my listeners also. I am indeed. Anybody who decides that they want to do a, a package of coaching um, as a result of this show, Get a 25% discount. Just put in Nikki Lee 1 when you check out. If you have questions or if you want to talk to me before you decide you want to plunk for a package, I fully understand that. If you go on my website, um, theinvestycoach.com, you can sign up for 30 minutes free with me. You, I think you can also do that through the com. You'll get my calendar and you can sign up for 30-minute free chat. Okay. And all that information will be on my website. If you go to readyforloveradio.com, slash trauma survivor. It will be there. I am very happy that you were here today. I think we covered the information I wanted to cover. And there will be a replay on uh, readyforloveradio.com slash trauma survivor. And along with all your links and, and all that information and your email address and all that stuff will be right there for people to take a look. So thank you so much for being here today. And like I said, I got I got some notes on some things I want to I look up some more and some things I want to 
ponder, ponder some more. You gave me some things to think about, which is always cool. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed being here, and I look forward to speaking to you again. Awesome. And listeners, I'll see you next time on Ready for Love Radio.